From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is, wait, wait, don't tell me, the NPR News Quiz. Hey, everybody, gather in front of me and prepare to salute, because it's the triumph of the bill. (laughs) I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago, Peter Sagal. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Hey, if there's one thing we can all agree on these days, it seems to be superheroes. They're everywhere, in the movie theaters, on TV, but surprisingly rare in real life. That's because super suits are extremely restricting where it matters. Trust me. (laughs) So it's an all-superhero show today, although not all heroes wear capes. For example... Black Panther didn't, and that was because Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter decided he shouldn't. We spoke to Ms. Carter right after she won her Oscar in February, and she was still pretty excited about it. First of all, congratulations on the Oscar win. Uh, have you gotten over it, or are you still sort of a buzz? Do you walk around holding it all day? I yeah, I do. I pick it up, I put it down, I pick it back up, I look at it. <laughs> really? You know? Yeah, it's a good weightlifting uh, tool, too. Yeah. You know? Now, you were nominated a bunch of times before, so were you surprised when you finally won, or you were like, it's my turn? Um, it had been 21 years since the last nomination. Really? So, yeah, I was like, man, if this is going to take 21 years each time, I better grab this now. <laughs> now, you're the first costume designer we've ever talked to, so I just wanted to go over some basic stuff. So you're the costume designer for a film. Do you ever, do you ever uh, have to deal with like actor egos, like you pick out the perfect costume for a particular character and like, I'm not going to wear that? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I guess you deal with actors' egos on a different level. You know, sometimes they, they say, you know, I can't wear that color, you know, or, um, but because we're discovering a character, we are both kind of contributing to the conversation. Right. So you have to occasionally just say, yes, so maybe your character has a bigger butt. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's get to the fun stuff, which is a movie like Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Comic book movie, fictional, fantastical science fiction country. You are like the, the most qualified person to ask about something that I've always thought, which is that a great problem for making comic book movies is that unlike in comic books, people wearing superhero suits in real life essentially look dumb. Yeah, because they don't realize it's their whole process to making that thing. You just don't go to the store and get some spandex and sew it up. No! So how do you make it so like the Black Panther when he's in his superhero suit running around doesn't well, look dumb? Yeah, well we do a muscle sculpt. That helps. What do you mean? And, uh, well, we take a, a vacuform kind of mannequin version of Chadwick Boseman's real body form, and we add the clay to uh, his muscles, and we form a superhero kind of uh, a physique. Are you telling me that that's... I'm that, telling that, you the secret. That's yes. not all Chadwick Boseman no, under there? No, so it doesn't matter how much muscle milk you drink, you're never going to be a superhero. you got to have some clay muscles. So you're to telling me that that like, amazing superhero suit that Chadwick Boseman is wearing yeah. in the movie yeah. is just like those padded things that the kids have at yeah. Halloween, and, like the yeah. muscles yeah. are like, built yeah. in? Yeah, listen, don't do this at home, kids. It's not exaggerated as you might think. It's just a 
a little, you know, because we don't want to, you know, to really make this out. It's like spanks, but in the other direction. Right. Kind of like pushes things <laughs> out instead of sucking help. them in. It's just more shoulders, yeah. you know. It's not much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when you make my suit, I want more than a little help. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> I, I, there, there's a famous line in one of the early Spider-Man movies where he, he refers to his costume and says, there's a little binding in the crotch. Is that true of your superhero costumes? Oh, no, there's a zipper, you know. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> so you are now an Oscar-winning costume designer. You've yeah. been a leading costume designer many, many films for many, many years. Thanks. Does that put some pressure on you to dress when you go out in public? Oh, no. I've always been the anti-fashion. I think that's what makes me kind of unique, that I'm not trying to please or prove myself to anyone. It's not in how I look. It's how I dress other people. Come on. Really? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, how about Halloween? I would expect, if, I, if you came to my Halloween party, which I hope you do someday, uh-huh. I would expect that you would walk in with, like, the costume. Is this yeah, part? that's why I don't go to Halloween parties. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now you're done getting accolades. I feel like you don't have to like force your way to get accolades at Halloween parties. That's yeah. like that's for amateur. That's yeah. amateur hour. Once you win an Oscar, I you're think not, you're if, good. You, if you no, walked into a party, everybody wants me to do their costume. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Do you get that? Do you get like people? Because it's Hollywood. People have money, and they call you up and say, "I want to be an amazing Halloween costume." Yeah, Can I hire you to do it? Because they think costume is a joke. You know that I'm going to do a Halloween costume after I design the Black Panther. <laughs> yeah. But I'm here to tell you, I'm not going to do it. Really? No. Well, Ruth Carter, what a pleasure to talk to you. We've invited you here to play a game we're calling... I hate Mondays. You designed Black Panther, so we decided to ask you about the Orange Panther. That is Garfield. (laughs) The inexplicably beloved comic strip character. Answer two out of three questions correctly. You'll win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anyone they might choose in their voicemail. Bill, who is Ruth Carter playing for? Brent and Angie in Indianapolis. They are winners of the Wait, Wait quiz available now on your smart speaker. You ready to play, Ruth? I'm ready. Here's your first question. Garfield was invented by his creator, Jim Davis, back in 1978. What inspired Mr. Davis to create the beloved character? A, his own cat, a beloved tubby tabby named Taft. B, his brother, who was fat, lazy, loved lasagna, and occasionally cleaned himself by licking his hands. <laughs> or C, a desire to create, quote, a good marketable character, unquote, that would make him a lot of money. Oh, his tubby tabby. No. Oh. It was C, he wanted to make a lot of money. Really? Oh, he, he did some research, and at the time, there were all these dogs in the comics but no cats, and he figured there were like 15 million cat owners who might enjoy a cat comic, so he created it to be popular, and it worked. Got it. <laughs> All right, you have two more chances here. In 2004, Garfield the movie came out. It was panned by critics, of course, but Garfield was voiced by legendary actor Bill Murray. Why did Bill Murray agree to play Garfield? Was it A, the producers agreed to pay him with a lifetime supply of Italian beef sandwiches from his favorite Chicago <laughs> restaurant? <laughs> B, he mistakenly thought that the movie's screenwriter, Joel Cohen, with an H, was Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers. <laughs> or C, he was still angry that he wasn't allowed to provide a voice for the gopher in Caddyshack. <laughs> oh, I'm going to try B. You're right. Yeah, nice. that makes sense. As unlikely as it sounds. Oh, God. He thought that he was doing a movie that was written by one of the Coen brothers, and he says he didn't realize his mistake until he was in the studio recording his lines, and all of them were terrible. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, last question. If you get this right, you win. Here we go. Okay. Not every Garfield strip has been embraced by his fans, such as which of these examples? A, a 2007 strip in which Odie burns an American flag while screaming <laughs> death to America. <laughs> B, a 1997 strip in which John's girlfriend Liz catches him wearing her underwear. <laughs> or C, a series of strips the week of Halloween 1989 written as a horror comic in which Garfield faces his greatest fear, existential loneliness. <laughs> oh, brother. Let's see. Um, I'm going to try B. You're going to try B? in which John's girlfriend Liz catches him <laughs> wearing her underwear? No, wait, no, they'll do that one. Let's no. take C. 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 So you're going to go for C, the existential yeah. horror? Yeah. That's what it yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That well, was a hard one. It was hard, hard if you've never seen these very real comics from 1989, I highly recommend you look it up. Because Garfield, as opposed to being funny and chubby and angry, he wakes up in an empty house where no one is left. And he spends all week panicking because he's facing his greatest fear, oh. loneliness. <laughs> Bill, how did Ruth Carter do in our quiz? Ruth got two out of three, which is a win for Yay. us. Yay! Yay. I finally, oh, I won a second prize. Yeah, it is. It's got to be better, right? It's just all uphill. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Oscar, wait, wait, don't tell me, Nobel. Ruth E. Carter won the Oscar for costume design for Black Panther just this year. A museum exhibit featuring her designs is now traveling the world. Ruth E. Carter, thank you so much for joining us on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. Congratulations on the movie and the Oscar, and we'll look forward to what's next. Take care. I should say that not everybody is on board with this new golden age of superheroes. For example, here's Paula Poundstone talking about a recent superhero blockbuster. I saw the second Avengers. I, I don't remember if I saw the first, but I saw the second Avengers and I hated it. I thought it was stupid. And it was, it was a lot of... Surprised that wasn't on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was just dumb. Paula Poundstone. I hated it. It was stupid. Paula Poundstone. It seems to me that there's there's no. It's very it's very you know blow upy and fighty mm -hmm. and. Those and, are the technical terms. Yeah, and I don't. It's, it's not a reflective film. There's not. No, it's not. It's not like, for not, example, a Bergman film. There's, there's not, not a lot of right. There's not. A, there's not a time where where there's just like a nature scene and you're watching a bird flutter. So I don't understand how even the app could discern. Go now. Apparently, go now. and I, I have not seen the movie myself, but uh, this is true that in a guide of like when are good bathroom breaks in Avengers Endgame, one of them is a scene where Bruce Banner, aka the Hulk, mm -hmm. is eating lunch. Hmm. So when he Maybe sits down to eat lunch, it's a good time to go. While the stupid arrow guy is going and retrieving his arrows. <laughs> I could never figure out how the stupid arrow guy even is a superhero. Like everybody else, you know, I can throw this thing, this hammer, and it has, ma and I can throw my shield, and it zooms back, and it, and I can fly, and this is a guy with arrows. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have, like, what on earth would make anybody think that that was 
Does he is he ever successful? Does he ever like shoot any at robot yes, he, and the robot's like <laughs> it, it, it happens. Take this in the spirit of the movie. It's it's not real. <laughs> When we come back, a man who can stop a speeding wide receiver and a woman who has the occult power to make anything funny. That's coming up in a minute on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message comes from Panera Bread, here with your breakfast wake-up call. At Panera, breakfast to go no longer means to settle. Try their new maple-glazed bacon, scrambled egg and cheese breakfast wrap and pair it with a new Madagascar vanilla cold brew, all made 100% clean and ready to go with rapid pickup at the push of a button. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and that means compromising is not an option. Panera, food as it should be. I'm Jesse Thorne. Timothy Simons played Jonah Ryan on HBO's Veep. On a show known for its insults, has anybody got more of them than Jonah? If the cruelty registered, our show would be an hour and 15 minutes long because every scene would be like, excuse me, you can't speak to me that way. This week on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, everybody. This week, we're jumping on the superhero bandwagon, but you know, not all superheroes appear in movies or wear amazing costumes or shoot flames from their eyes. That's why we like to expand the definition of superhero to other really interesting people. Also because Chris Evans blocked our number. For example, (laughs) football Hall of Famer Charles Tillman, known as Peanut, was called the greatest defensive back ever to play the game. But even after playing in two Super Bowls, he had a problem believing that our cheering crowd was legit. I'm on the phone and I can't see y'all, so I do a lot of radio interviews and they have like a pause on cue where they hit a button and people yeah. just clap. Yeah. If y'all are real people, say peanut on three. One, two, three. Peanut! Damn. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So you're, you were, of course, uh, one of the great cornerbacks. You actually uh, went to the Super Bowl with the Bears. Not a lot of people can say that, sadly. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you got there. That's all I can say. So um, I, I got to ask, because you know, the Super Bowl is this big event that we all watch. What is it like to be a player involved in it? I mean, you're preparing for a football game, and I understand that's a pretty hard thing to do. Did all the distractions of like media week and the week leading up, did that get in the way? It didn't get in the way. It was just pretty damn boring. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could show y'all a picture. You say the same question over and over. Yeah. Uh, when else it was, you know, how do you talk about Peyton Manning? You know, I talked about Peyton Manning for five days straight. <laughs> and someone took a picture of me with my head on the table like a, a, a bored five-year-old in class <laughs> getting ready to eat some glue. I love it. So uh, among other extraordinary achievements, uh, you played against Tom Brady, and you've uh, intercepted that, I think, twice in one game. Oh, yeah, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Brady has such like a legend about him. Greatest football quarterback who's ever ever lived. I mean, do you guys find that like intimidating or like uh, inspiring? Like, I'm gonna go out and pick that guy off. I'm gonna take option number two. I'm gonna go out and pick <laughs> that guy off. Right. I think he is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, to play the game. But yeah, I'm, I don't think anyone's intimidated by him. 
I mean, there was a second-year player that went out and damn near beat him. So, right. yeah, I don't think players are intimidated by him. I, I think he knows he has a target on his back. So guys are like, yo, if he's the greatest, well, I want to go against the greatest to see how good I am. We heard that you played a game when your wife was extremely pregnant and you, she might have gone into labor at any moment. Yeah, so this was 2012. My wife was pregnant. I did an interview with Lawrence Holmes. Lawrence Holmes asked me the question, hey, what are you going to do if your wife goes into labor before the game? Well, I said, well, hell, I'm missing the game. I'm going to go see my daughter be born. Right. Um, a lot of players get ridiculed about how they're not family men and they're, 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 they're just athletes, but I felt like I was attacked because I made the smart choice, the family choice, the more important choice to go be with my family and watch the, the birth of my daughter. So after the, literally after the game, my wife and I, we go home, she, she changes and everything, gets her bag, and we go straight to the hospital at, like, uh, midnight, and I have my daughter literally the next day. I have my daughter that night. Well, that's right awesome, man. Congratulations. How's she doing yeah. these days? Come on, audience. That's when you're supposed to go all yeah. yeah. <laughs> He knows what he's doing. Well, Charles Stillman, it is an absolute joy to talk to you, but we have asked you here to play a game this time we're calling. Now, that's what I call an offensive line. Okay. You know a lot about defense. You were very good at that. But what do you know about offensive lines? That is, things people said or did that offended people. <laughs> we're going to ask you about three offensive lines. Get two questions right. You'll win a prize for one of our listeners. Bill, who is Charles Tillman playing for? Diane Schultz of Austin, Texas. All right. You ready to do this? All right, big all-star. Is she on the phone? No, she's not on the phone. She's, <laughs> she's, she, she, is presumably, she is presumably listening at home, though, so, you know. I'm, I sound real stupid right now. You do, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's your first question, Charles. During the early days of spaceflight, uh, TV stations would often, often broadcast the astronauts live, and NASA was worried that one of their astronauts in particular would swear when the whole world was watching him. In order to prevent that, NASA did what? A, they told him that for safety's sake, he had to wear a gag so he wouldn't, quote, inhale space. <laughs> B, through a careful PSYOPs campaign, they convinced him that the most offensive swear he could possibly say was gadzooks. <laughs> or C, they hypnotized him so he would hum anytime he wanted to swear. I'm going to go with option Charlie. I'm going to go with option C. Option C, you're right. That's what they did. Wow. And NASA says, they admit they did this. They've never said what astronaut they did it to, but it is absolutely true that astronaut Pete Conrad, while he was on the moon in one of the Apollo missions, weirdly hummed all the time. Oh, I so remember that. We have our yeah. suspicions. All right, Charles, second question. BBC Radio goes to great lengths to keep its listeners safe from offensive content. They even put a decade-long ban on what song because they thought it was offensive. Was it A, Madonna's Like a Virgin, B, Ice-T's Cop Killer, or C, Bobby Pickett's The Monster Mash? I'm going to have to go with my guy, Ice-T. You'd think that. It was the Monster Man. Oh, no. They said, this was back in the 60s when the song came out, they did not play it for 10 years because they thought it was, quote, too morbid. Oh. Well, it was a graveyard smash. It was. <laughs> Last question. Even professional wrestling is not immune to worrying about giving offense. At one time, the World Championship Wrestling Organization had to make what sweeping change? A, each wrestler was required to say, I'm just kidding before trash-talking their opponent. 
B, instead of heels, wrestling villains were to be called sensible flats. <laughs> or C, they were told to stop calling chairs, guitars, and ladders brought into the ring to hit people foreign objects and instead call them international objects. Based off the audience and them laughing, I'm going to go with the last one. I'm going to go with C. You're all right. That's what happened. Yeah. Boom. Bill, how did Charles Peanut Tillman do in our quiz? We just saw why the peanut is Chicago's champion. Congratulations. You won. You You could weed me bedtime stories anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> Charles Peanut Tillman is a former cornerback for the Chicago Bears and Carolina Panthers. He's a recipient of the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award which is presented by Nationwide. Information about his charity, the Charles Tillman Cornerstone Foundation, can be found online. Charles Peanut Tillman, thank you so much for joining us on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Hey, thank you, guys. Thanks, audience. <laughs> Katie Bryant was a comedian and improviser here in Chicago. Then she went out to New York City, auditioned for Saturday Night Live, instantly became a star in that show, and then she went on to be the lead in a new Hulu series, Shrill. We experienced her supernatural charm when she joined us on stage in March of this year. And Peter asked her when she knew she had powers. Is it true to say, like a lot of very funny people, you've always been funny? You were like class clown, a, a, a young comedian? I mean, I, I was always trying to be funny, that's yeah, for we, sure. That's all of us, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. You, were, you were doing comedy like as an improv in, in, when you were growing up in Phoenix, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did teen improv, which you know oh, you want to see. <laughs> oh, God. Um, can I ask, what was the name of your improv group in Phoenix? <laughs> oh, my God. I've been in so many dumb improv teams, I can't even. Drop in Science, Hunter Family Crest, Virgin Daiquiri, what else? <laughs> Keep I going. Mean, okay, Baby Wants Candy. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I used, to, I used to sit in with Carl and the Passions sometimes. I mean, I, I've, I've done my time. Yeah. <laughs> Did you come to Chicago specifically to do sketch comedy? Yeah, yeah. I knew about Second City and I.O. and I wanted to get involved. Yeah. So. And you did, which uh, is kind of amazing. Yeah. Right. I mean, because a lot of people come to Chicago to try to make it on the, on the main station of Second City, and they never do. And you did. Oh, my goodness. Is this my birthday? It, what is yeah. happening? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, welcome to the show we're calling. Wait, wait. You're actually all right. I need this. Can, you're well, fine. I have, I have to say that when I checked into my hotel room oh. today, you were right there. Yeah. Well, that's nasty. Yeah. <laughs> on the cover of Michigan <laughs> Avenue magazine. Oh. Well, I always wait for men in their hotel rooms. <laughs> I think that's cool in a Me Too era, you know. Well, what was it? Because, I mean, a lot of times we hear about the people who came out of Chicago uh, and go to Saturday Night Live and elsewhere, but, but what was it like when you were just, like, you know, working the streets as a, as a comedy <laughs> Working the streets, come on. She's in hotel rooms now. She's working Lord. the streets. I know. She wasn't busking as an emperor. She wasn't yeah. walking down and going, hey, can I get a suggestion? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just standing in the corner of Michigan and Randolph going, somebody name an occupation. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so you went off to New York like a lot of Chicago comedians do, and you auditioned for Saturday Night Live Ditto, but you got cast, which is rarer. People talk about the Saturday Night Live audition, that you have to come in with a character. Yeah. Did you do that? I did, yeah. They told us, you know, five minutes, a couple original characters, a couple impressions, so that's kind of what I did. Yeah, and can you tell us what you did? I did Adele, and I did Ethel Merman, which was very topical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, that, that, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but what did you do for your Ethel Merman? Um, I said, this is Ethel Merman on the TV show My Dog Ate What? <laughs> and then uh, I sort of screamed in an Ethel Merman voice, like, my dog ate what? <laughs> and that was what got me to Saturday Night Live. <laughs> That gives me so much more, even more respect for the show. I love that. I understand you, I understand you recently got married. I did, yeah. That's very exciting. Oh, thank you. I, I, I hope you didn't make the mistake of marrying another comedian. Yeah, I did. Oh, damn it. Yeah. Yeah, how'd that work out, though? It's going real bad. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know how it's going to go. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> did, did, did he propose any funny way? Um, I, I mean, kind of, in that, like, he proposed in our home, which I had sort of said, like, I want that. You know, I want to keep it private and in oh, our house. Had you planned it? Did you say if and when no, you No, I kind of was just like, you know, more like we would see people, like, get proposed to on a, on a jumbotron. jumbotron. Bad, and I would bad, be like, I bad. can't handle that FYI. Yeah. Make a note here. <laughs> yeah. No. And so I kind of came home from work and opened the door and then just like a true bat out of hell, like from the back of our bedroom, he came around and was like, will you marry me? Whoa. And I was like, whoa, baby. Really? Yeah, but it, w- it he was. He just rushed you? Did yeah. He think, wow. Did he think like if it was a surprise and you were flustered, you wouldn't say no? No, I think he knew that he had a very short time between me entering the door and walking even 10 steps before my bra and anything would come off. And he wanted to catch me fully dressed and dignified. Well, I think that's, that's very thoughtful. That is thoughtful. Yeah, it's actually sweet. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. to me, the most romantic thing in the world. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm so glad yeah. for everything oh. that's happening for you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, A.D. Bryant, we're delighted to have you here, but we have asked you here today to play a game that this time we are calling... A.D. Bryant, meet the 80s Bryans. Uh-oh. <laughs> You're too young to remember, but way back when we had a decade called the 80s, and it was filled with wondrous and amazing people, all of whom were named Brian. We're going to ask you three questions about 80s Brian's. Get two right, you won our prize for one of our listeners. Okay. Wait, can I ask one thing beforehand? Please. Not to put you on the spot, but could you give at least one of the answers in the Ethel Merman voice? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. All right. Don't tell us. Don't you're tell do us. Just okay. Don't tell us. Okay. Be we'll, like, we'll be like we... your husband. Like, just come right out. Uh, Let's <laughs> do it. Right. I love that. Jokey, who is A.D. Bryant playing for? Dan Martin of Boston, Massachusetts. All right. This is for him. First question, composer and producer Brian Eno produced some of the biggest hits of the 1980s. Which of these was among his most popular works? A, the main title theme for Police Academy 8, Bribe Me With a Spoon. <laughs> B, the startup sound for Windows 95. Oh, wow. The, or the music and lyrics for a Hoover vacuum jingle. C? 
You're gonna go for the Hoover vacuum jingle? I guess. I don't. That don't. can't be right. Really? It can't be. <laughs> I can't oh. imagine that could be the end. Well, okay. I, guess what? B. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> You're right. Ethel is right. You're right. They're all right. I can't believe yes, I had to bring out he, the Ethel Merman that quick. I know. <laughs> it was. He, he, Brian, you know, was paid thirty thousand dollars to write the sound that the Windows ninety five started when you turned it on. Brilliant. There you are. All right, next question. Brian De Palma, director of the 1983 film Scarface, was forced by the MPAA to make several cuts to get the film down from an X rating to get an R rating. After doing so, what did he do? A, a giant mound of cocaine. <laughs> B, he put the deleted scenes back in because he figured no one would notice. Or C, he sang the vocals in a Hoover vacuum jingle. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm realizing I don't like games. <laughs> <laughs> okay, A, I'm going to say it because I think say. it's the most fun. You did the giant mind of cook. No, I'm afraid it was actually B. He just put all the cutscenes <sighs> back in the of movie. Of course. <sighs> last question. If you get this right, you win. The last question is about Brian Johnson. He was the lead singer of ACDC, one of the great bands of the 1980s. On the same day he auditioned to be the lead singer of ACDC on a day in 1980, just a few hours earlier, what was he doing? A, he was doing AC repair at DC Comics. <laughs> B, he was doing dirty deeds and he was doing them dirt cheap. Or C, he was singing the vocals in a Hoover vacuum jingle. I mean, if it's not C, I gotta be blasted to the moon. <laughs> so you're gonna go with C? Yeah. Does Ethel agree? Yeah. <laughs> Then yes, it was in fact C. Oh, yes, yes! Thank God. Literally the day he successfully auditioned to be the lead singer of ACDC, Brian Johnson uh, went to a commercial studio and he recorded this jingle for Hoover Vacuums. Right to the edge, in a bag as easy as ABC. The new high power compact from Hoover, it's a beautiful day. There you go. It's <laughs> amazing. Oh wow. I know. That sounds like something you would do on a Saturday Night Live audition. Right. <laughs> this is and here's a lead singer from ACDC doing a vacuum commercial. Absolutely. Yeah. Jokey, how did Eddie Bryant do in our quiz? Eddie is very funny, and she got two out of three right, making her a winner. It's all Congratulations. Thank you. Aidy Bryant is the star of Shrill on Hulu. You can also see her on Saturday Night Live. Aidy Bryant, thank you so much for being with us. What a pleasure to meet you. Aidy Bryant, everybody. Coming up, a man who did the impossible. He made politicians seem charming and funny, and a politician who doesn't need any help in that department. That's in a minute on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Choiceology an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Remember that project that you were sure you would finish over the weekend but was still hanging over your head come Monday morning? Why does that happen so often? The latest episode of Choiceology explores why it's so difficult to forecast projects and tells the story of the most expensive structure ever built. Download it and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Mitch McConnell has become a champion for conservatives. 
But back in the day, he once got support from groups like labor unions. I marked it down as one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. So you thought about it over the years? Oh, I still think about it every time I see his face. Mitch McConnell, a new series from Embedded. Subscribe now. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. So this week, we're talking about superheroes, and of all the TV shows about superheroes, the first and greatest was The West Wing. I mean, real people do not talk and act like that, right? Writer Aaron Sorkin, who created the West Wing, as well as Sports Night and The Newsroom, not to mention a whole bunch of movies about smart people, joined us earlier this year and confessed he didn't start out wanting to be a writer. When I was uh, uh, in high school, I thought I was going to be an actor. Uh Uh, I was in all the school plays and community theater, and then I went to college and studied acting, and it wasn't until really the day after I graduated from college that I for the first time wrote for pleasure and wrote dialogue and I felt a confidence that I'd never felt with acting and I was a pretty cocky actor. (laughs) Really? What did you write that day? I started writing A Few Good Men. Wow! Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, my older sister, Debbie, uh, had just graduated from law school uh, and she went into the Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps, the JAG Corps, and she told me a story about this trip she was about to take to Guantanamo Bay. Right. Um, uh, and it became the inspiration for a few good men. Right. I moved to New York after college, and I got a job bartending in Broadway theaters. And uh, I wrote a few good men on cocktail napkins during the first act of La Cage Fall. Oh, I love that! You know, as a bartender in theaters, you, you work during the walk-in, and you work during intermission, but you're not doing anything during the first act. Uh, and there was an unlimited supply of cocktail napkins. I'm just envisioning like this cocktail napkin and on it is, you can't handle when you turn it over. The truth. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Aaron, you're so, of course, known for your, for your dialogue. Does it just come into your brain and you quickly write it down? Like, do you hear the back and forth or is it something that you actually have to conjure? Uh, on a good day, I do, but I don't have many good days. Yeah. I kind of start... Um, pacing around and trying to get into an argument with myself. Uh, and if I can get a good one going, uh, then it starts going down on paper. Like out loud? Do you do this out loud? Oh, yes. <gasps> hey, Aaron, one of the questions on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was about you one time. There was a story really? where you were working on dialogue, I guess, at your house, and didn't you accidentally hit your head on like a... I mirror. broke my nose writing. Yeah. 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 I, well, you're right. I had forgotten well, that. Let me just say you're holding the pen I wrong. did. Yeah. I, I was writing an early episode of the newsroom um, and I got up in the middle of the night because I, I had an idea just, just for a sort of a classic comic beat where Jeff Daniels was going to lunge at one of the staffers and two staffers were going to hold him back in one of these, you know, I'm going to get you kind of moments. And I was really excited about it. It was going well. Um, and I, I happened to be kind of acting into the mirror, and I lunged as Jeff Daniels would, but there was no one there to hold me back. So I smashed right into the bathroom mirror. Right. And there, oh, jeez. Did, did you go to the emergency room? And if so, what did you tell them? I, I called that friend that you have that you can call at midnight when you've broken your nose writing. <laughs> um, 
And she came over and she took one look at me and said, you know, we have to go to the emergency room. And I said, okay, but just read this scene because I think it's pretty good. Yes. <laughs> Well, Aaron Sorkin, it is an honor, actually, for us to talk to you. But we have asked you here to play a game we're calling Welcome to the Hot Wing. You, famously, created the West Wing. So we're going to ask you about Hot Wings, the delicious American <laughs> staple foodstuff grown on the great wing farms of the American Midwest. Answer yeah. two or three questions. You win our prize one of our listeners, the voice of anyone they might like from our show. Bill, who is Aaron Sorkin playing for? John Chaplin of St. Petersburg, Florida. All right. You ready to play? Okay, John of St. Petersburg. Here we go. Here we go. First question. Wings have been the, at the center of some surprising legal battles, including which of these? A, a man convicted of assault with a deadly weapon was released after judges agreed a hot wing was not deadly. B, a law in Colorado that declared from henceforth chicken wings will be considered sandwiches. <laughs> or C, a lawsuit between two restaurants in El Paso, Texas, over who owned their common name, the Lord of the Wings. Okay. Uh, the first two, A and B, are certainly the funniest, but the answer's got to be C. I, I'm somewhat disappointed that you oh, didn't no. find the last one funny. <laughs> oh, I did find the last one funny. But, but because the, the real one was B, actually. No. In Colorado, there's a law that certain kind of bars can't sell liquor unless they also have sandwiches. And so oh. in order to relieve certain bars from a problem, chicken wings are sandwiches in Colorado. Okay. You still have St. Petersburg. I'm sorry. I'll try to do better on the All right. Hand. Next question. Chicken wing aficionados will go to great lengths to show their love for the food, as in which of these? A, a jewelry company in Los Angeles sells earrings made of discarded chicken wing bones. B, a man in Tennessee created the first ever wing pit, just like a ball pit, but you jump in and bounce on the chicken wings. Or C, a Virginia man used two cups of wing sauce to go out in wing face last Halloween. Okay, um, I'm gonna say C. You're gonna say C. C, yeah, wing face. It was, in fact, A. You know, you should know this. You live in L.A. Of course, somebody would make jewelry out yeah, of chicken. Yeah, you know, even as I was saying it, yeah. I thought, yes, definitely somebody's making earrings out of chicken wings. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give the third one everything I've got. All right. This is sort of like the position Cohen was in. What do you mean? Well, it's one... nothing like the position Cohen was in. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, 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 you know, the die has been cast, but he's going to try one more time. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is brutal. It is. You, in 2014, okay. Here we go. In 2014, Philadelphia's 22nd annual Buffalo Wing Eating Contest was won by 125-pound Molly Schuyler. She ate a record-shattering 363 wings. Yay for her. But the question is, how did she celebrate her win the following day? Did she A, drive to the Des Moines Blue Ribbon Bacon Festival and eat five pounds of bacon in three minutes? B, celebrate with a free meal at IHOP, which she won by eating 59 pancakes in one sitting? Or C, to go to Jethro's BBQ in Iowa and eat a sandwich with pork tenderloin, chicken tenders, white cheddar sauce, fried cheese curds, applewood smoked bacon, and a pound of french fries in just... 15 minutes. Wow. Which of those did she do? Um, I honestly have no idea how someone who only weighs 125 really? pounds ate over 300 chicken wings. It's pretty bizarre. 
Uh, you know what? I'm going to say, A, that she ate a ton of bacon. You're right, but she also <laughs> did the other I mean, two. Yeah. She did all three wow. things. Bill, how did Aaron Sorkin do in our quiz? Aaron, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> I know. Aaron Sorkin is the creator of The West Wing, Sports Night, and The Newsroom. His play, To Kill a Mockingbird, is on Broadway now. Please see it if you have the opportunity. Aaron Sorkin, an absolute Thank honor you. Thank you very to talk very to much. you. Bye. Thank you for Thank all you your great you. work. Bye, Aaron Sorkin. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. Support for NPR and the following message comes from the NPR Wine Club. Discover hand-selected wines from award-winning vineyards around the world. Learn the stories behind each one and enjoy unique bottles inspired by your favorite NPR shows, all without having to leave the house. The club's welcome offer includes a bottle of the delightful all-grapes-considered Pinot Noir. If you're 21 years or older, uncork the fun at nprwineclub.org. Support also comes from BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment at your convenience. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com wait to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Finally, a woman who emerged from the national stage in 2018 in a run for governor of Georgia. Some people say that Stacey Abrams is a superhero, but it turns out she's just another nerd like us. We asked her about her first big national gig back in January. I really want to find out about the process of giving the State of the Union response. But first of all, you must know that that is a cursed job, right? Yes. Right. So I don't have a job right now, so I was free. That's true. <laughs> Whenever anybody mentions the response to the State of the Union, it doesn't matter what party. People say, oh, yeah, Bobby Jindal looked like a baby, and, and Marco Rubio with the water, and the Democrat with the lips. And so you, how did you say to you, how did you plan that you would not end up on that list? I drank a lot of water early. Yeah. <laughs> um, I used a low-gloss but very moisturizing lipstick. Yeah. Um, and I prayed really hard. <laughs> did you... It's technically called a response. Yes. Did you think at all about what you anticipated President Trump might say so you could respond to it? I would put it this way. I have heard him speak before. Yes. <laughs> I assumed it would be some combination of demagoguery, uh, self-aggrandizement, two lines about something nice that he would three lines later overrule. Right. Um, <laughs> Did you know that it would rhyme? <laughs> you know what? That, that I missed. And, you know, I feel sorry for whoever thought that was the right way to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, have we met before? Because I went to theater camp with at least three girls named Stacey Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible. Really? Were it's you at my bat mitzvah? <laughs> So everybody knows you for your 2018 gubernatorial campaign here in Georgia, but what people may not know is that you have this completely different career writing romance novels. Can you tell us about that? 
So I had this very bad breakup with uh, one of my boyfriends. He is a chemical physicist. He's a wonderful person and we're friends now. I read his dissertation when I was in law school on um, microzeolite technology. Anyway, nobody cares. Oh, for that alone, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually really interesting. Okay. And so I thought, ooh, this thing he, cre- he, he discovered, I was like, you could appropriate it and create this chemical weapon that could be discovered by this chemical physicist. And I told him about it, and he was like, that could never happen. I'm like, this is why we broke up. You have no imagination. <laughs> um, so in law school, I decided to write two things. I wrote a very exciting treatise on the operational dissonance of the unrelated business income tax exemption. Mm-hmm. And, yes. <laughs> and then I wrote Rules of Engagement, which is a romantic suspense novel. So I technically write romantic suspense. I kill a lot of people, and then those who survive can fall in love. Oh, really? Ah. So. And, and then Rules of Engagement, my ex-boyfriend and the genesis of the story languishes in prison for the rest of his natural life. <laughs> really? <laughs> Stacey Abrams, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. We have invited you here to play a game we're calling... It's a fine bromance. So we have established that you are a successful writer of romances. But what do you know about bromance? Bromance, the love that dare not speak its name, but instead shouts it at frat parties. (laughs) We're going to ask you three questions about bromances. Get two right, you'll win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anyone they like, giving response on their voicemail. Bill, who is Stacey Abrams playing for? Eli Irvin of Pooler, Georgia. There you go. All right, you ready to do this? I am. Uh, Here's your first question. Bromances go way back. Uh, which of these is a real example of a historical bromance? A, St. Augustine used to invite his best pal, Olypius to hang out in an actual cave with him in the mountains, which he called our beloved man cave. <laughs> B, in the early 1800s, composer Franz Schubert was such close friends with poet Franz von Schober that he referred to themselves together as Schobert. Or C, although it was edited out of many Bibles, there's one paragraph in the book of Genesis about Adam and his friend Jeff. <laughs> I'm going to go with A. You're going to go with St. Augustine. I'm going to go with St. Augustine. Invented the man cave. He did so much for the world. <laughs> he did. But, but because but, but. I listen to the audience. Listen to the people. You're the people the believe people. the answer the is B, and yeah. therefore I will throw myself on their mercy and blame them if I lose again. <laughs> uh, they're right this time. It won't be. All right. One of the most famous bromances, uh, of course, is between Bert and Ernie on Sesame Street. <laughs> We all know about the rumors that they're gay. They're not gay. They don't exist from the waist down. But you can still make it work. (laughs) (laughs) There was another rumor that haunted Bert and Ernie for at least a decade. What was it? A, that they were a hot dog and hamburger brought to life by a wizard. B, that they were intended to be a sly parody when they were invented of Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew, or C, that Bert was secretly dead. I got dark really fast. You did, yeah. (laughs) I 
feel like B is the answer. I'm going to give you a hint. The hint is that this rumor was most prevalent in the 90s. Maybe it is I think it's C. You think it's C? I think it's C because we were really dark in the 90s. She's right. Let's see. So like, it, was, it was exactly like the so, whole Beatles thing. There was like a conspiracy theory. You can tell he's dead because X, Y, and Z. But no, he's, he's not dead. He was never alive. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. The bromance between Ernest Hemingway and James Joyce started in Paris in the 1920s, of course. Joyce and Hemingway would often go to bars together, and their nights usually ended when which of these happened? A, Joyce would get really drunk, start spouting gibberish, and Hemingway would write it down, eventually creating Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> B, Joyce would get really drunk, pick fights, and then hide behind Hemingway screaming, deal with it, Hemingway, deal with him. <laughs> or C, Hemingway would get really drunk and then eventually try to pick up Joyce saying, come on, so what if you have a mustache? Joyce is a woman's name, right? I don't think it's the first one. I don't think Hemingway shared, so I don't think it's the last one. So I think by the process of elimination, it has to be B. You're right. That's what it was. So, Bill, how did Stacey Abrams do in this little contest? She won this one! <laughs> Stacey Abrams is the founder of Fair Fight Action, the author of Minority Leader. More information can be found at fairfightaction.com. Stacey Abrams, thank you so much! That's it for our team of superheroes until we come back with the inevitable sequel, Avengers Disassemble. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a production of NPR and WBEZ Chicago in association with Urgent Haircut Productions, Doug Berman, Benevolent Overlord. Philip Godica writes our limericks. Our public address announcer is Paul Friedman. Our house manager is Tyler Green, assisted by Simon Tran and Mary Dolio. Our interns are Panina Beatty and Lila Francis. Our web guru is Beth Novi. B.J. Lederman composed our theme. Our program is produced by Jennifer Mills, Miles Dornboss, and Lillian King. The Robin to our Batman is Peter Gwynn. Technical directions from Lorna White. Our business and ops manager is Colin Miller. Our production coordinator is Robert Newhouse. Our senior producer is Ian Chillog. The executive producer of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is Michael Danforth. Thanks, Bill Curtis. Thanks to all our panelists, all our guests, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Peter Sagal, and we will see you next week. is NPR.